Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Hello, everyone. It is now officially, I think, fall. I saw so much fall color on my drive to work today that, and I have my fall scentsy scent in. It smells like sugar cookies in here. So we're going to talk about um, what happens with insects in the garden in the fall and what, you know, we as gardeners can either do or more often not do to not mess up their fall plans. And we're really excited I have to get in here first because I did post on social media last time that we wouldn't talk about fall anymore, (laughs) but that's okay. I said it's our favorite, so we're going to just keep talking about it and that's fine. And we've said it's officially fall about three times, so, but that's okay. You keep, you keep going, Sarah. I love it. You can't stop me from talking about fall. And if you're going to make announcements like that, you should tell other people about them. (laughs) But we're really excited because it's not just Hannah and I here today. We have our friend Courtney from the UNLB lab, um, who, you know, by definition, should know something about bees. So do you want to tell us what your actual job title is? And then maybe like, what does that mean? Like, what is your day-to-day job kind of like? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited. And um, so basically, I am a project coordinator with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Bee Lab. Um, It's vague enough because I do so many different things. It depends on the season. So uh, day-to-day, it definitely varies. In the summer, it's a lot of field work. So helping um, with native bee surveys and research going on in our lab with native bees and wild bees, and then also working with honeybees, whether that is helping to manage like our hives or um, helping with outreach and education. So we just had an event the other day with the Lincoln Zoo. So right, there's there's a lot with that. And then um, another big part of my job is helping with the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Program, um, which is a a really neat program that connects beekeepers and provides them with beekeeping advice that is scientifically vetted from the university, which is really important. Um, And yeah, I also help out with uh, One Health program with Dr. Liz Van Wormer. So that is a whole nother project where I'm helping do some samples out at Mead, Nebraska um, at the Alta End site. So because bees have been involved with that. So we're we're all over. (laughs) Yeah, you are. And uh (laughs) Back in the spring, if anyone remembers me talking about planting bloom boxes on campus, Courtney is the person that I did that with, and we planted those gardens down by her beehives that she uses for education. So there's another connection that we have. That's actually how we met, really. Yes. Well, the um, Nature Series, the PBS Nature yep. Series, we helped with um, the promotion of that in mm-hmm. Nebraska. That's that's how we met. We started planting those gardens, and then... Um, I hope we just get to keep working together. Yeah, I know. So this is so fun. <laughs> okay, so I'm assuming this event you did with the Lincoln Children's Zoo was Sensory Safari. Yes, yes, it was. Wonderful. For those who don't know, Sensory Safari is for folks who have different, uh, depend on a variety of senses as opposed to what you might traditionally use your sight at the zoo, right? And so how did you explore bees without looking at them oh my goodness it was so much fun so did you get a touch them okay we did not (laughs) because the drones which are the male bees that you can you know traditionally touch they've already all been kicked out for the fall 
So, which kind of ties into what we're talking about today. So, sorry, boys. They get kicked out uh, in the fall. And so, we couldn't find any of those. But we did get, like, a mason jar of, like, all the worker – of some worker bees and had a mesh top to it. So, um, we basically would put that up to their ears so they could hear the buzzing and just kind of the little sounds that they would make. And then – Thank you for the sacrificial bees, but you shake them up a little bit and they release an alarm pheromone. And so the kids and um, participants were able to smell the alarm pheromone, uh, which smells a little bit like Laffy Taffy banana flavored. Yes. Which is why as beekeepers, we can't eat bananas before we go out and tend to the honeybees. I know. I it's so amazing. did not know that. That ah, is so yeah. interesting. <laughs> so yeah, that was one of the things we did. But I feel like Laffy Taffy banana doesn't actually smell like banana, but it's right. it works all the same. So you can't have bananas or Laffy Taffy banana. <laughs> That's right. N- neither of those. <laughs> I guess depending on who you are, that might be more or less of a sacrifice. I always liked banana Laffy Taffy, but I know people who... Who don't. Yeah. <laughs> Very strongly don't. I feel like you either love it or you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you gave us a good entrance into what we're talking about with bees in the mm-hmm. fall. And so, I mean, some of us know more about honeybees mm-hmm. than um, like our native bumblebees mm-hmm. and vice versa. So I don't think we've hardly spent any time on this podcast on honeybees. So okay. we will a little bit today. And do you just want to tell us like... What happens in the hive in the winter? Because mm-hmm. I think we all think of, of bee, honeybees as living together as this big happy family all year. But they still do kick out some of their members. <laughs> yeah, it's a little... <laughs> nature's a little metal sometimes. Nature's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess it does help like starting with wintertime and kind of going back to fall. So yeah, in the wintertime, honeybees, they do not hibernate. They are actively vibrating um, in a cluster around the queen. And their population is significantly decreased from obviously in the fall and the summertime um, because they need a smaller population so that they don't eat through their food reserves, which is their capped honey and their pollen in the hive. Um, So there is some culling involved and... um, it just so happens that it happens to be the males. Now, that's not them hating on the males. It is for a biological reason. So the male honeybees, which we call drones, um, they just they cannot feed themselves. So they require being fed. Um, they do not participate in like what I call like the chores of the hive. So it's all the female worker bees that are the nurse bees, which tend to the queen and the young, you know, the the babies, the larvae, as well as helping clean out the hive and forage. So that's all female, you know, worker bees and the drones. They um, they have to be fed, and then they do have a role. It's important. I don't want to, you know, undermine that. But their role is reproduction with virgin queens, which occurs in like the spring and the summer. So anyway, basically this time of the year, um, they get the drones get kicked out. So that is part of the honeybees basically trying to decrease their population. And then um, there will be this point in time in the fall leading into the winter where the final what we call winter brood hatches. And that's the the worker bees that are going to then last throughout the entire winter going into the spring. Um, this is a little bit more uncommon for worker bees to have that long of a lifespan because in the spring and summer, those worker bees will live like two to four weeks. Um, so they're... The phrase like busy as a bee, that's no joke. They literally like they work around the clock. So they're the lucky ones. Yeah. Are drones um 
do they go after pollen in this in the summer too, or are they really just there for mating purposes? They are just there for mating purposes, correct? Yep, for the honeybees. Okay, mm-hmm. gotcha. Um, yeah, that is so interesting, and I I I've been learning more about the parallels between honeybees and our native bees mm-hmm. because I think sometimes we're taught. Or maybe just given the impression, because there's so much to learn about bees, we can't always learn it all, that, like, I thought all bumblebees lived completely alone and had no workers. But there are some bumblebees that have workers that live around a queen. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And do they do... social. Yep. Okay. Do they do kind of a similar thing where one overwinters? Yeah. So you'll have with bumblebees, they will overwinter. Usually it's like the, it's a virgin queen that'll overwinter. So she, it's called the gyne. That's just kind of the terminology in the bumblebee world. Um, and the male bumblebees, they will go out and forage and they participate and help out as well. So, um, it's really cool. Some of the bumblebees, the male bumblebees will have like this white fuzz on their, in the, between their eyes so I don't advise any like don't do this at home, but like I like to go out and I will like catch those ones and just hold them in my hands um, because they, the male bees, they can't sting. So same with the I'm, bees. I mean, it's well known that I'm fairly guilty of touching bees, whether yeah. I should or not. <laughs> I, just like um, <laughs> I do. I do like to pet them. Are those the ones? So I've been seeing a lot around my yard of just bumblebees that are dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I remember we had a conversation over the summer about how to maybe guess if it's been a chemical problem or not. And you talked about their tongue sticking out. Mm-hmm. Yes. But this time of year, and I know I'm seeing it and I've gotten a few questions like, somebody must be spraying something because all the bees are dying. But mm-hmm. is that maybe just seasonally appropriate yes. for the bumblebees too? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, definitely the proboscis or their tongue sticking out is like their, that's a potential sign for a chemical, you know, death essentially. So, but at this time, yeah, I mean, a lot of organisms are, especially in the insect world, right? Just as a whole, they are, they're dying and that's part of their life cycle. But leading up to this point, they have reproduced in some extent, in some way, um, whether that is like some of our native wild bees, they've laid, you know, eggs in hollow stems or holes in the ground, and those eggs are then going to overwinter and then hatch in the spring. So, you know, don't be discouraged in seeing the adults go. That's part of their life cycle, and uh, they've hopefully had a good life and, you know, been able to feed on some delicious native flowers and left some little progeny. (laughs) So for those bees that do overwinter, what are some things that we could do in our gardens to help them throughout the winter? Right. That is a great question um, because so often, at least this is my experience with extension and outreach is people think the problem is so much bigger and I can't do anything about it, but that's completely not true. Um, each individual, each landowner can definitely make an impact. And um, for overwintering insects, the biggest thing is um, leave the leaves. <laughs> I don't know how to say that, not sound cheesy, but like honestly, leave your, the, you know, leaf fall and your mulch and just let that build up. It's, it's like a little um, warm blanket for like the bumblebees that are going to overwinter. And we are happy to say that you can buy leave the leaves signs on plant or not plant Nebraska, arboretumplants.org. We have them there. Buy them. We'll send it right to you. It's a yard sign. 
Yay. That's just, so cool. I didn't even know. That. Yeah, <laughs> just we do. Like, it just kind of rolled off the tongue. So that's perfect. Yeah, it says leave the leaves for wildlife. So awesome. there you go. Yay. Awesome. We'll have to get that. I was also just going to say really fast because like the leaves are important, especially for those ground dwelling uh, native bees, but also like our stem uh, dwelling native bees. So many, I don't know why. I think people just like to feel like they are 100% in control and so they want to prune everything back, but leave it. Leave your, you know, the, your plants, especially those perennials that have died for the season, but they're, you know, obviously going to come back, but leave the stems because one, I like to say that the native bees will nest in those stems um, and they seek them as shelter in the fall and also in the spring, but also leave the seed heads because you know, birds are going to eat that and that's going to provide food for different organisms and insects, especially going into, you know, that late winter, that starving season in February and March where, you know, everyone's cache, cash, however you say it, is running low and your seed heads are going to be able to provide food for some organisms. So we need to revise our beauty standard for, <laughs> for those things. I have been thinking a lot about like, where did that come from? Because we talk about um, like NSA promotes a lot of native plants mm-hmm. and we talk about them being so much more low maintenance. And then I was trying to think, well, what's a high maintenance plant? And it was ho- after roses. It's hard to come up with like any plant that you technically have to cut back. I mm-hmm. think that's completely an aesthetic Yes. reason you know we've we like to wrap up summer mm-hmm. clean up all the dead stuff and say we're done and i know in some public landscapes they do it because um the snow gets scooped onto the landscape mm-hmm. and then in the spring they have to deal with all these mushy like grass leaves so they'd rather cut them back ahead of time mm-hmm. um and i do get that mm-hmm. but i am a big advocate of lazy gardening yes. i like to s- kind of like see myself as like guiding my garden and doing mm-hmm. like pretty much the minimum to keep it pleasing to myself right. um, rather than, I mean, I don't need to make work for myself. I'm, I am excellent at making work for myself. <laughs> I don't need to make it in the garden too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, referring to your question of like, where is the standard come from? It, from my perspective, my opinion, I think it's just this, this social lie that we've made up as far as like, oh, if my yard, if my garden's messy, that reflects on my personality. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say we need to let that go. We need to just let go of our pride, let go of this like odd connection of like our landscape reflects us and just let it be and serve its function. Or maybe we should rethink what it's reflecting because I think my wild, slightly unmanaged garden is a fairly decent (laughs) representation of myself. Yes. I think it's great though. There's more habitat there. There's more life there. And maybe not to get like all deep and meta, but maybe that is reflective of personalities and just like let it go. And, And you choose your battles. You choose, okay, maybe this needs a little attention, but also, maybe it's fine to just have some, let's let chaos just kind of be an, just a, it's an okay thing. Mm-hmm. Like life is crazy. We don't need to look like we got it together, right? Let's let go of that <laughs> false facade <laughs> and embrace the chaos. <gasps> That's, I mean, that was kind of the inspiration behind our leave the leave signs mm-hmm. too, is I think I've found people to be very accepting of managed chaos mm-hmm. as long as they know that it was managed chaos. Mm-hmm. If they think that your yard doesn't look like your theirs because you didn't care. Mm-hmm. They get grumpy with you real fast. Right. 
But as soon as you communicate mm-hmm. that it's unmanaged, or it's not really unmanaged, it's just managed differently than theirs, and that you did it unintentionally for a purpose, I've found very little pushback from, from neighbor situations. Public landscapes can be different, but that's why Hannah made our leave the leaves signs, yes. because if once people know you didn't leave the leaves because you broke your leg and you somebody needs to send the youth group over to rake for you, <laughs> <laughs> they know you left the leaves for habitat, right. um, you get a lot more understanding. Yes. I completely agree with that. I've, I've personally experienced that. We um, basically did cardboard and mulch on our whole lawn and we installed all these native plants, which have just been a delight, especially because that really is probably part of what kept us sane through COVID and like being at our house, like, okay, I'm going to step into my little oasis outside. But we put up a sign because we were getting so many questions and um, not necessarily out of malice, but just out of like unaware, you know, unawareness of what is going on here and why, you know, it's different. Why is it different? And it was phenomenal because people would stop, read the sign, and then they would smile and just like go about their like walk by our place. Or if we were out there, my husband Sheldon would, you know, of course, offer him seeds and cuttings and all that stuff and be like, spread the love, like put this in your yard, you know. Um, so I think that signage and education is so important because honestly, I think people, they want to know and they want to embrace these things. They just don't know okay, what is going on here? And how do I incorporate this in my yard? We kind of had this like break, like this generational break of, you know, having these native plants and letting them just be part of our landscape. Maybe this is putting you on the spot, but I I just thought of this question. What is something that people do that they think is helping our native insects or bees that is not? Oh man. I, the first thing that came to mind was, was like cutting back the, you know, your perennial like stems. I don't know why that was just like the first thing people like, okay, I'm trimming it back. Like, you know, it's fine. Leave them. Um, it's, it's going to serve them better if you let that stand, especially into the next Um, into the next year, into the early spring. And then if you want to trim them back in the early spring, because at that point you have your native bees, you know, some species emerging in that, in the early springtime. So if you do want to trim them back, then that's beneficial. So that was the first thing I thought of was just like the need to clean the need to like, yeah, a different management style, but just let it be. They're used to living in that natural environment. I actually have questions for you about that that I've been meaning to ask you. So one workaround that I was taught was if you've got stems of something that's too tall, like say your Joe Pye Mm -hmm. is done blooming and you don't want it flopping in your driveway, that cutting stuff back to like 18 to 24 inches is like a happy medium for like your human eye, but it also leaves the stem available to insects. Yes. Is that... Like that is a pretty true. good. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a great. I'm glad you said that because there are certain tall plants out there. I was thinking more like my native grasses and stuff. Where I'm like, yeah. just leave it. Um, but yes, the tall ones, even I have to do that because yeah, they're like flopping into the road. They're covering our deck. Like we've got these sunflowers that are just like all over and it's like, okay, it's time for those to go. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then I have another, maybe this is more of like a hypothesis or, or a, a question i'm not really sure but we um a past coworker and i had done some like you know digging into her she left all her stems and we were so excited to go out in the spring and take pictures and find the insects that had overwintered and we found nothing and <laughs> nothing like nothing <laughs> we were like okay do you live in a barren desert or is there something else going on and someone had told us that sometimes 
cutting just like a few inches off the top to open the stems mm-hmm. can be helpful and mimic like the grazing habit mm. that would happen in a grassland. Um, but while being careful, you know, you're not, we're not talking about cutting them to the ground, like right. just cutting them to open the stems. And I never, like, I have given that advice to people occasionally. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good option. It's really kind of a matter of, I, I think of it because every plant is a little bit different and offers different things in your landscape. So, yes, you can cut the seed head off and open that cavity up. That's why I was like, it's really beneficial to do that in the late winter. I'm thinking like February um, because no native bees have emerged yet to nest. And you've also been able to then kind of maintain the seed heads for any birds that need to, you know, forage through the winter. So that's like a happy medium. But if you're wanting to tidy, you know, like I said, kind of tidy it up or cut back some of those things, then yes, you can absolutely, you know, trim it off. But try to keep it tall because that is, that'll allow for more nesting room for those native bees. Do they stack up in the stems? Yes. Like, are there multiple of them? They do, yes. It's really phenomenal. So they they stack up. They'll go um, to, like, the bottom of the stem or the back of the stem first and lay. So those native bees will lay an egg on, like, a little ball of pollen. And um, then they'll, like, create a little wall. And the material that they use, it totally depends on the type of bees. So your leafcutter bees, they use leaves, obviously. So it's really, it's really cool, though, to see like a cross-section of that. Anyway, so then they will do that throughout the stem. And towards the opening of the stem is where they tend to lay the male offspring. Okay, so the females are on the back, males are on the front. And the reason is because if there is a predator that comes, it's more likely to get the males instead of the females, since the females are the ones that are going to be reproducing. So um, that's kind of a little fun fact, which is why tying into the plants, it's so important to not trim them too short. You want to keep that, like you said, 18 inches, because if they're too short, um, then you are going to lose some of that female po- that female population because of uh, predation, basically. So. so it's the same bee that will lay eggs in one stem or? That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each hole is like kind of like an apartment, you know, so they go in and that's their, that's their space or condo. I <laughs> mean, multiple rooms. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fancy. I have this cute little graphic from, I think it's from, yep, Darcy's, I could have guessed, that I'll scan and take a picture of that like illustrates not just how they stack up in the stem, but what Courtney said about the timing of everything happening and when we can cut stuff and when we should not. So I think stem nesting bees are super cool, but I think ground nesting bees are absolutely fascinating. And I found one last spring. Really? I was cleaning up my herb garden uh, and the bees love my herb garden. Like this is, they are like, I have all these native plants and they're in there hanging out on the oregano. But I was cleaning up my herb garden because oregano is aggressive and so I was pulling it, it back and this brand new baby bee came digging its way out of the soil looking at me like what the heck are you doing leave my bed alone <laughs> and then another one came out and I only got a video of one of them but it was so exciting because it was this was like mid to late this was late April because it was like the week before spring affair mm. and I was like I gotta get something done before spring affair keeps me out of the garden but it was so cool to see it's just like one after another they just yes. kept coming out I love that. So a majority, more than half of wild bees are actually ground dwelling. So obviously people 
I say people, the general public has been more exposed to the stem and, you know, or cavity dwelling, whether it's in stems or wood blocks because of native bee nests that are, you know, on sale at certain stores, which just a little side note, those are not necessarily the best for wild bees uh, for a few reasons. One, the diameter is not necessarily ideal for their size. And the um, length, like we mentioned before, is usually not long enough. So um, they're fun to be able to see the bees and, you know, them nesting. But um, there's some guides, and maybe I'll give that to you if people want to know. Well, if I do want to build this and be able to watch what's going on, what are those right dimensions? So I want to provide those resources. And then, but honestly, the best thing is usually letting them use the plants because the bees know what plants they need. It's, it's their food. It's their shelter. It's all in one. And um, that's like the ideal thing for their shelter. So, but the ground wouldn't be back to those. So I was just like, ah, that was my little soapbox on that. And the other reason why those uh, boxes or those like handmade nests aren't the greatest is as people, we tend to get distracted. And so we forget about them and uh, it's fine. I'm guilty of it. Okay. I will be honest. I have a really cute story, but I'll let you finish. We're not afraid to be a little bit um, pokey at things that people think you know, yes. or are sold to people because that's really yeah. what's happening is yeah. some marketer decided, oh, people love bees. I need to get in on right. this. It's And so we're not afraid to poke at that a little bit. We mm. don't want to, you know, be too mean and rock people's world. No. But we don't want to be telling you to do but something But I want to share wrong. that with people because it's like it warms my heart that people want to help the bees. And then, you know, it's not their fault. They are just getting the wrong information from these you know, places that are just trying to sell them something for a buck. And so, yeah, we want to give them the right information to do that. Also, no offense to scientists, but a scientist did not come up with the name Bee Hotel. That was a marketing <laughs> ploy. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read our papers, but the titles are long. So. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> but I have a very funny story for you about one of those. Yeah. Because I did get sucked into buying a cute little one that was sitting right up front at a discount home goods store. <laughs> and I got, I was just like buying garden stuff and it went in my cart. Well, I hung it up it promptly fell down and i didn't do anything with it but silas found it and um no bees had been in it it'd just been hanging up for like a week and i found it like three weeks later over in his little like outdoor kitchen set area and i and he dragged over one of our friends who was visiting he's like auntie come see this she's like what are you doing this is my farm what are you farming i'm farming bees oh my goodness that's so cute (laughs) So maybe I'll send him to a beekeeping class when he's old enough. Yes, that is fantastic. I love that. But yeah, but yeah, the ground uh, nesting bees, though, they're the most common. And as far as like how people can facilitate shelter for them, honestly, it's just like we say leaving bare soil, but... Plants, as we know, they're going to, you know, they want to take over. And honestly, in a very healthy native landscape, you're going to have space between plants. Like that is just, that's part of their process so that they all have room and the resources they need with space. So, but having healthy soil, I think that is something we definitely can do intentionally. Um, So, right, like mulching with your leaves and, um, you know, incorporating some compost in there and um, not tilling. So those are all really beneficial things for those ground nesting bees. And then also just 
don't use chemicals. Just don't use chemicals. Just leave it. You know what I mean? Like you, that's going to be definitely sink, like soaking into the soil, running off into the soil, and that will impact those ground dwelling bees. Okay. One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to dispel things that we learn on Facebook. Perfect. <laughs> so um, one thing that I noticed has been making the rounds, maybe because we're currently in drought conditions throughout most of the country, is providing water for bees <laughs> and like yes. there's all these methods to it like put out a shallow dish put out fruit put out all these different things so one do we need to provide water for bees and two if we do what's the best way to do it okay so i'm gonna start i need to kind of separate this answer a little bit into our like wild bees and our honeybees so our wild bees if they're in your area they have a water source. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in your area. <laughs> like, they wouldn't be able to survive. And so, they're fine. Now, honeybees, I, I separate it. It's different because honeybees are agriculture. They're livestock. So, if you're bringing them, you're you're transporting them into a landscape, you know, and if that doesn't have a water source, then that can become a problem. Um so there's obviously, there's good ways of doing that and there's, you know, not so good ways of doing it. My my main thing I tell people is if you're going to be providing water for any organism, you need to be consistent. You have to, con- you have to make sure that it stays consistent because otherwise they're coming in depending on that. And then you take a week off. Well, now they don't have water, right? You wouldn't do that for like your pet or your child. like. So don't do that for, you know, an, other organisms that are now depending on that, um, especially honeybees, because like I said, you're bringing them into that landscape. So they're depending on that. The other thing, I mean, provide like moving water would be like my other thing that's really beneficial. Then you're not going to be, you know, dealing with stagnant water and then, you know, mosquito nesting and that sort of thing. Obviously, not everyone can do a fountain, but um, if you are going to provide any sort of water source, obviously make sure it's fresh water and then provide a way for the bees, the insects to get out, right? Don't just have like a five gallon bucket of water because they're not going to, they're going to fall in and drown. And now you're doing way more harm than good. So um, definitely provide, I really, if you're going to do something like having, you know, rocks within it, something that they can climb out. Um, I've seen some really interesting things of like, you know, pool noodles, like cut up into little bits and then they can, so they're like little water rafts and they can then climb up and dry off and fly out. Oh my gosh. Bee water rafts. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you could repurpose your, Do you not have to so- serve them tiny margaritas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm just like honey, honey margaritas. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man. With Chris Lash, uh honey on the rim. Yes. <laughs> I kind of want this recipe. I Uh, saw some very creative bees this summer in our kiddie pool. uh, Um, It was actually, they were like, you know that game where you throw the two balls tied together at the PVC pipes? I forget what it's called. Well, some of those were floating in our pool and they've got dimples like golf balls. Mm -hmm. And so I found these bees like landing and drinking out of the little dimples. Yes. It's really cute. I couldn't get a picture. Every time I pulled my phone out, they flew away. But... (laughs) I think that's awesome. Yeah, most of the time, I mean, insects as a whole, they prefer puddling, which is essentially kind of what you're describing, drinking water from a shallow source. So whether that is, um, you know, rocks that are by the water, not necessarily in the water. And um, I've seen them, you know, drinking water out of like moss because that's pretty naturally wet. 
or mud puddles. I mean, I don't know if anyone, you guys have seen like butterflies that, you know, just like you're like, why are they drinking out of like the ground? Well, it's, you know, mud and they're able to also get some nutrients and minerals from that. So puddling is good. So like Sarah said, we don't talk too much about honeybees, mm-hmm. but if people were interested in getting into beekeeping, mm-hmm. how do you go about that? And especially here in Nebraska, what would be some good ways? Yeah. So I would definitely encourage getting connected um, with people who know what they're doing. <laughs> like that's any, you know, any hobby that you start, you really want to have a mentor because as you learn and do it, you're going to have questions that come up. So the University of Nebraska-Lincoln has created this program called the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Program. And it is really neat because you can jump right in and there's all sorts of free resources. So um, you can start there and that also helps you get connected with the local community. So we've partnered with all sorts of states outside of Nebraska and empowered local communities so that, yes, there's online material that they can just get a nice baseline and even see if they want to get into it. Because what I see is people have this great heart, great intention of wanting to help bees and and help their environment. And there's this misconception that, oh, I need to keep honeybees. And that's not necessarily true. That's not for everybody. So honestly, the best way you can help bees is just planting native flowers for your area. So anyway, but getting into honeybees, then you need some information. What am I doing? What's the cost? Do I even want to do this? And so on Great Plains Master Beekeeping website, you can go there, get those initial tools, um, get those resources at gpmb.unl.edu, and then also get connected with people in your area because then there's these things called open apiaries. So an apiary is a location that you keep honeybee colonies and they're free to go to, and you can, um, they'll, they'll provide suits, like beekeeping suits, so you can go into the honeybee hives, learn about what's going on during that time of the year, connect with people in your community with uh, beekeeping, and kind of just take your next steps from there. So it's a really interesting program. It's built like kind of this accession model. So as you become more advanced, you then become and, and test out and create this project as a master beekeeper. And then you can become, you can run these open apiaries and become a mentor in your like community for beekeeping. Um, and also there's requirements of like volunteer hours, right? Because you, the point is to also give back and, um, and then create a project based on your interest with beekeeping. So a lot of resources with that I know, but basically get connected. There's really great resources out there. And also like with anything, don't just like get on YouTube and assume everything is correct or Facebook, like you said, right? So not everything is correct on that. And um, so get connected with someone that can have more like scientifically vetted information. Okay. So back to our native bees. Can you walk us through, because I know, I guess we get so many questions about like the bees are dying, just people losing. I mean, my niece came up to me the other day and she's like, I'm so sad because the bees are dying. I think she said that to my sister, actually, but she was so (laughs) sad and she had watched this thing on YouTube or whatever. And how do we, one, are they dying? Why? Or do we know why? And what can we do to help? Because I think that's the key thing that we have lost communicating sometimes in science is that there are, we can be a really doom and gloom. Right, right. So what are the positive things that we can do? 
Yes, that's a great question. And yeah, we get that question all the time. And I'm always happy to talk about it because um, it's really important. And like you said, there can be this doom and gloom mindset about it. But I just love to flip that and be like, and again, like what I mentioned earlier, empower people like you as an individual can do something about this. There's a lot of things in this world and life that are outside of our control, but this is one you can actively do something about, especially as like a landowner. And so I guess first addressing like, what is the problem? So, okay, like how do I want to address this? This is like so interesting. So basically what we're seeing is a combination of things. So one is a lack of food, a lack of forage, aka a lack of good plants for them. And this is extremely relevant to our native bees because while there's, while a majority of species are generalists, meaning they can feed on different flowers, there are specialists, meaning this one species of native bee feeds on this one species of native plant. And so as, you know, more structures are going up and people are just doing these, you know, non-native grass lawns, we're, lo we're losing food for them basically. So that's the big issue. And then chemical use, right? Anyone can go to the store and grab Roundup and stuff and then not necessarily use it correctly. So the combination of those things is really what's causing an issue with our pollinators as a whole and insects as a whole. Um, and then honeybees, again, those issues impact them. They have some separate problems with varroa mites because, again, they're they're livestock. So just like with cattle and stuff, they're having to be treated and dewormed, etc. So honeybees have some of their own specific issues as well. And it's interesting because people might hear about declines of honeybees, but that's not necessarily true because honeybees can be bred and, you know, for more because it's a livestock. So it's e it's easier to manipulate honeybees and generate more queens and create more colonies. And also the reason their population, right? I did air quotes, their population is declining. So is because um, they're getting like transported on these really stressful pollination routes. So it's stressful on their health. And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of turnaround for honeybees, but it's because we're dropping them into these monocultures and then you know, which they're getting exposed to the chemicals that are sprayed in those fields, et cetera, because of the way we've set up our, like our farming system. So, but yeah. And <sighs> I mean, I think it'd be safe to say too, that we have the honeybee population that we have yes. because they're a livestock. So we as humans essentially created that population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if that, that population is at our whims as beekeepers, to yes. raise and lower right. where the native bees um they're here um they don't care about us but what we do affects them strongly and and so that's where i think you know our garden habits become important yes uh it, but i did just run some numbers while you guys were talking and one of the things that i love about bees as opposed to some environmental crises which are just they are. Like Hannah said, they seem big. Um, even scientists don't always know the solutions. Therefore, they can't always tell us super helpful things to do. However, with bees, we know what they need. They need mm -hmm. habitat and they need safe habitat. Yes. Well, we can create that. Yes. <laughs> quite easily, even in our yards, even without owning a lot of land or donating hundreds of thousand dollars mm -hmm. to something. Um, it takes 435 bloom box gardens to make <laughs> one acre of habitat. 
Well, this year, you gardeners planted 325 gardens. You planted pretty much an acre of habitat in one year. And that is only bloombox gardens. That's not all other native plant Mm -hmm. um, plantings that have happened through other nurseries. Um, And that's only this year. I mean, bloombox has been around since 2016. So we've planted several acres of habitat just with you guys. And that's not including the trees and shrubs you planted, mm-hmm. all of the larger public landscapes that have been planted. Um, so I, one of the reasons why I stick to this, you know, environmental problem is because it is easy to see my impact every mm-hmm. day. Yes. That's so beautiful. And I love that you said that because that segues perfectly into like, what can you do? So like if you hear nothing else you just know that you can make an impact and it starts with where you're at and, you know, especially those that have land, right? And it doesn't matter if it's just a little two by two garden or plot um, or even just like a pot in your, on your apartment, you know, patio. So every, like you said, everyone can make a difference and um, it doesn't have to be, it's not overwhelming. It's only overwhelming if you let it be. But the yeah, Bloombox has made that easy. I will say that of all the methods that I've experimented with as far as like, okay, how do I, I've got this grass lawn. How do I now, you know, I, it's that's where we're at. How do I turn it into a healthy native landscape? And of all the methods I've tried, like Bloombox has been the most beneficial because it's like, look at the step-by-step guide and it's not, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. And I, you know, I think that's a lot of the barriers I see with people not going for a native landscape is they're just like, well, well, how do I get there? How do I take that next step? So I love that Bloombox has made that easy because yes, you need to put in native plants and then people are like, well, where do I go? right? It's, it's hard to find those native plant nurseries or buying it online. That's another barrier that we have because people, um, go to Walmart, people go to these other stores and they just buy what's there and they say, oh, it's flowering. So it must be beneficial. Not necessarily true. Right. And because they're ornamentals, they're not necessarily native to this area. And so our, our bees, our insects, that are native here, that are wild here, have not co-evolved with those plants. So they can't necessarily feed on those plants. And so, and also it's more work for the landowners because these ornamental plants are from like tropical areas and Nebraska is not tropical at all. So now they're dead and you're sad and you're out like a hundred bucks. And so you give up and you just go back to mowing your lawn. So it doesn't have to be that way. And um, definitely people can, just plant native plants. Start small. You also don't have to do like an, like five acres at a time if you have a larger property. Like just do a little plot and just gradually build it out. So start by just putting in a, a plug like of a native plant and watch it take off and spread. <laughs> That's the best part, right? A few years back, the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum partnered with the Department of Entomology here at the university to create a publication on what to plant to to provide year-round support for our pollinators. So we will share that publication in the show show notes. Because if you are new to Bloombox, maybe you just planted or you're a seasoned veteran of Bloombox, or maybe you just started listening to the podcast and you are outside of our Bloombox area, you want to know what to plant, that will help get you started. 
before we start ending the show, because if anyone's noticed, after we say we're ending, it always takes us a minute. <laughs> I, <most> goodbye. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you. Do native bees make honey? Oh, interesting. Native bees do not make honey the way we view it, right? So in this, you're not going to see bottles of or jugs of native bee honey. They do create their own individual, like for their own colony, they will make their own like nectar or honey. It's just not the way we view it. So it's in a nest that's either not easily accessible like honeybees are, or it's in a configuration where it's not just this linear plane of like honeycomb. It's like a sphere of honeycomb, right? So you you can't centrifuge that out. Um, you would be also damaging brood as opposed to honeybees. You can isolate which boxes they make honey in. So like your bumblebees, they're, they're also social just like honeybees. But their nest is this giant sphere of multiple cells of wax. And so um, it we call them like honey pots, but some of them are also their brood. So you, you can't just remove that and pull honey out. And, you know, for some people that are, that really are adamant about trying it, like you could maybe syringe, like you'd have to do every single cell, which would be so tedious and kind of like psychotic, like that'd be wild. So they do generate their own food stores, the, the social wild bees will, because they have you know, this whole family to feed as opposed to a majority of our wild bees, which are solitary, those like cavity dwellers, whether that's in stems, wood, or the ground, they don't generate, they don't create honey because they don't need to. That that individual, their babies that they laid in that cavity, they feed on a little pollen ball as they go through metamorphosis, but then they emerge as adults and then they're feeding on the nectar in the landscape, in, in the native plants. So, um, it's really just the social bees and insects that are going to be creating some sort of storage, like food pantry of honey. That's a great question. I just remember when you came to the Bloombox um, greenhouse event and you had that uh, bumblebee nest yes. that somebody had given you. Mm -hmm. And you were like, and these are the honey pots. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you said these are bumblebees. So, and... I just thought that was really interesting. Yes. And I wanted to know. So yep. it is like, it is honey in the sense that they make it like honeybees do and it's to feed their young, but yes. it's, it wouldn't probably taste super like honey to right. us. Right. Yeah. So it is still honey from the sense of, okay, what is honey? Honey is nectar, which bees have collected from plants that has then been put through this very interesting process of regurgitation <laughs> throughout several bees because it's getting mixed with enzymes. Um, and it's, which is kind of what creates it as honey. It is then filled within some sort of wax cell, whether that is the honeybee cell or the honeypot sphere of bumblebees. And then before it's capped, so the difference between nectar and honey is the bees will then use their wings like a fan and, and basically fan the nectar in that cell and that'll remove a lot of the moisture before they then cap it. So that now it's like, it's um, like 
food, like it's storage safe, right? The moisture has been reduced, so it's less prone to like bacteria and mold and growth like that. So then they can later eat it. It's like canning food. (laughs) Bees are so cool. They're amazing, right? (laughs) So yes, to answer your question, yes, bumblebees make honey, but you're certainly not going to see it on a store shelf. And um, it's only to feed their colony. And I bet it does taste different because they have like their own process, if you will. And it also all honey will taste different based on what the bees are foraging on what nectar from what plants ever since you said honey pot all i can think of is winnie the pooh in these little honey pot (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of what it looks like though it's just this big sphere and it's like it's brown and you just want to kind of write honey with that backwards n on it (laughs) all right well i think it's time for one of our favorite segments of most weeks considering we forgot it last time (laughs) so i won't say every time uh, and that is what plant is on your mind this week. So I will let Sarah go first. So even though we're kind of, you know, beating this fall bush a lot, I I am still stuck on the colors of grasses. And my drive to work is down a rural highway. Uh, so I get to see just the beautiful colors in the ditches. Um, the colors of the trees. And then last week we went down to Southeast Nebraska to go seed collecting on this property where they had prairie mixed in with woodlands and the big blue stem and the Indian grass and the little blue stem. It's all turning colors and there's textures and I just can't get enough of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So what, what have you been seeing, Courtney, that has caught your eye? Right. Well, the very first you know, plant that came to mind is definitely goldenrod, which, okay, I am not very good at scientific names, but is it solidago? Oh, yeah. I just want to say that is a big deal for me. My husband would be so proud. He can always spout the scientific names. I'm like, where do you store this information? But anyway, goldenrod definitely, um, I don't know. It just brings me so much joy because it is, you know, specifically in the fall that it blooms and, it's obviously just this vibrant yellow. I like that the little florets, they're shallow enough that you see all sorts of species on them from bees to wasps to beetles. I mean, it's just this big just party on their flowers. And I just like how prolific they are too. You see them all over. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but they bloom like stronger better when it's drier right so i mean come on like talk about just this like hearty like go get it kind of plant and coming into the fall so i really like the golden run and what would you say your favorite plant is right now that you're thinking about yeah so friend of the show and friend of bloombox and powers came around uh last week because she was getting the courtyard ready for the first frost so that means all of the plants that are potted needed to come inside get trimmed all of that good stuff right so she had a bunch of cuttings of purple trade scantia which when i googled it the common name came up as purple heart trade scantia so it is a potted plant here because it's a tropical plant otherwise and it kind of it can be pretty prolific and I, I you've probably seen it and you don't even know so she came around with all these cuttings and so I took a bunch so now I need I'm working on getting them rooted and then put them in soil and when she came the uh, Nebraska Statewide Arboretum was also getting our annual audit we do this every year so our auditors were here in the office looking through all of our financials 
and I did make them take some <laughs> so that they would have some plants to remember us by. <laughs> so um, only one person left theirs behind, so I had to give them away. That makes me laugh. Um, okay, so we have one event to remind you of. We're finally slowing down. I've been in my office four days this week. Well, no, I take the back three because I'm going to be out in the arboretums tomorrow. Um, but that's still that's still an improvement. Um, <laughs> what's coming up? Plants and pints. Okay, so this is our... I'll let Hannah tell you about it. This is her brainchild. But it's it's the Young Lecture in a post-COVID form. (laughs) It's Young Lecture for Millennials. Um, Really, we just asked our student worker, well, not student anymore, but we said, what would it take to get you to an event? And he's technically Gen Z. And he said, well, you got to put beer first. (laughs) So we didn't do that first. We did a second. So it is Plants and Pints. (laughs) And it is going to be at the Barred Owl. It's on Tuesday, so you still have a week to get your tickets. $20 for members, $25 for non-NSA members. And you can come and hear... I keep going back and forth. Is it two speakers? Is it four? Because they're in partners. (laughs) So there's four people representing two companies to talk about trees and tree care and why they created tree companies in Nebraska. They're both from the area and they have created really excellent companies that we work with quite a bit. So you'll be able to come get a drink, get a pint of beer. I stumbled on this last time because I was like a pint of beer, but not a pint of anything else, guys. Let's be responsible. Okay. And uh, talk to folks. We're all going to be there having a good time. There will be snacks because there's always needs to be snacks. We get the whole rooftop bar the whole thing just for us. There's fire pits, there's outdoor seating, there's indoor seating. It's posh, y'all. It's going to be great. (laughs) So come on over, Plants and Pints. You just need to go to plantnebraska.org slash, nope, sorry, plantnebraska.org. Yeah, it's a slash backslash plants dash pints. I mess it up every single time. It will be in the show notes. Don't worry about it. (laughs) that's why i always link things uh and then there's like is it a backslash or a forward slash and what does that even mean and then there's the extra long hyphen i don't know what that is um the n dash m dash okay no 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 No. i don't know what that is no no i use one punctuation and that's a comma No, Karma always had to remind me. It's an M dash. You need to put an M dash. And I was always like, I don't know how to do that on a keyboard. It's not on the keyboard. You have to look up a shortcut. It changes all the time. I would just send it to her and she would fix it. (laughs) Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And everyone out there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word about our podcast so do it wherever you're listening right now you can of course always send us your questions we'd be happy to hear you i think we're going to do a little bit of listener input for our next halloween edition (laughs) of bloombox growing deeper so be on the lookout for that on social media and everywhere else 
So thank you for listening. Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum.